Our reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. It is our general theme last fall before Advent and then picking up in the new year to go for a few weeks this winter and spring, teaching on the notion of biblical holiness. That is what we sometimes enjoy saying is sanctification. Sanctification, sanctus, the Latin word for holy. Sanctification is holiness. Holiness is an attribute of God. It's a supreme attribute of God. It has in it the notion that God is above all and separate from all and other than all. God and His creation are not to be confounded. God and His works are not to be confused. God in His manifestations are not to be commingled with the outcome of what He creates. He stands, dwells, lives, exists in absolute holiness. Holiness not only has the idea that He is separate from, but that He is absolutely clean, whole. W-H-O-L-E. He is holy in all of His attributes. It is a holy righteousness, a holy justice, a holy love, a holy mercy. Concomitant with the idea is the notion of brightness, that God is brilliant. He is bright. In fact, He is so bright that that's all we see is the light because He is enshrouded in light. Light in effect, covers him because we could not stand the brightness of his actual holiness. And so this pristine notion of God as holy is what causes in us, when it's rightly seen and perceived, a sense of awe, wonder, worship, If anyone will ever get a glimpse of the holiness of God, that person will have no problem worshiping. That person will have no problem seeing and perceiving his or her sinfulness. That person will have no problem confessing his or her sin. I submit to you the experience of Isaiah in chapter 6 when he saw but a glimpse of the throne room of God and God high and lifted up and the angels singing, holy, holy, holy 
It was in that recognition of God's holiness that he saw himself in his true condition. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then quickly he says, what shall I do? Where will I go? What is the outworking of this vision in my life? All Christian ethics, morals, behaviors descend from our creatureliness. That is, God is holy and we're made in the image of God. But more importantly, it descends from our redemption. God said to a redeemed people, a saved people, a rescued people, a delivered people, a separated unto himself people, a called out people, a people on a sojourn, he said to them, be holy for I, the Lord your God, is holy. I'm convinced that only God himself can give any one of us a vision of his holiness. I've heard a lot of good preaching in my day. I grew up in a Christian home. I, I can't remember when I heard my first sermon. I think I was in the cradle. I know I was probably in my mother's arms and it probably was like two weeks after I was born is what I've been told. I've heard a lot of preachers preach and I've heard a lot of preachers preach on the general theme of the holiness of God. And I've heard some good ones. I can name them and you'd say to me, yeah, Ron, those are the best in your lifetime. And I've not heard one yet, I think, that can even begin to broach the subject. As most of you know, Mark Davis, our senior pastor, and then the other associate pastors, Chad and Paul, uh, we preach every Sunday morning on the same text of Scripture using the same title and general theme. And we go through it verse by verse, but it is, I want you to know that it is those men who slice the pie, not me. <laughs> I'm the one who follows their lead. Whatever they give me in the bulletin is what I see as a theme, a subject, or a text, or a title. And last week, I did my dead-level best to preach on what was called the anatomy of the soul. Now, Mark had titled the sermon last week, Soul War, Soul Warfare. And we talked about the battle that rages in our flesh. And I just happened to go in the direction of describing the nature, our thinking capacity and our feeling capacity and our volitional capacity and all of the, the parts of us kind of a biblical psychology and how it is affected and warped and how it becomes the arena, the theater of our actions, which we noted were sinful. And we looked at a long sin list out of Galatians 5, about 10 specific misdeeds that are sinful. And if I could have titled that, I would have titled it The Anatomy of the Soul. Mark comes this week and gives me that title. So I just pulled out my notes from last Sunday and I said, I'm just going to do it again. <laughs> and then my conscience seized upon me by about Wednesday and I thought, well, I really need to do something a little different for my little flock on Sunday morning. 
And you may not be happy with what I decided to do, but I think it'll be good for us. The Bible is rich in vocabulary with respect to the notion of sin and sinfulness. We throw that word around lightly and we use the word a lot. We're not afraid of it here in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. We believe in God, man, sin, salvation, redemption, Christ, Holy Spirit, church. We're not afraid of any of the great verities of the faith. We preach them all. In fact, that's one of the things we work at is preaching the whole counsel of God. We preach election, predestination. We preach it all. Heaven, hell, blood atonement, virgin birth of Christ, verbal inspiration of the Scriptures. If we believe in verbal inspiration, then let's just look at some of the, the verb the verbum, the words. The Old Testament is rich, and the conflict in my soul was whether to cover the Old Testament, about eight significant words for sin in the Old Testament, or whether to go to the New Testament and cover the dozen that are there. I chose the New Testament because perhaps we're more familiar with it, and of course it all builds upon those rich heritage of the Old Testament, which we'll mention from time to time. But let me just use this moment to give us a little taxonomy of sin. And maybe it'll help us in seeing our sinfulness and our need for holiness in our lives. So let's begin. Get out a clean sheet of paper and a number two pencil and number from one to 12. The word that is most used, in fact, we even name our doctrine of sin, homartiology. In other words, the study of sin, homartia. It means to do wrong, to trespass. It is a transgression. At the root of the word, it means to miss a mark, to shoot for a target and to miss it. Now that is truthful and that is the word that's used and it's often translated sin. In fact, that's often the only definition of sin we'll ever hear is to miss a mark, to fall short of a, of a target, to not quite reach the goal that you're interested in. But that's not an adequate understanding of either that word or the whole counsel of God with respect to sin because the secularist and the humanist can define sin in terms of just simply that, that it is our finitude. We are finite. We have limitations and sin is a reflection of our limitation and there's no moral responsibility involved. But even the biblical word brings forth a personal responsibility because it refers to sin as both an act, a deed, and a condition that we're in. Jesus is the one that said, you will die in your sins. It was Paul who asked the question, shall we continue in sin? There's a challenge to us to move beyond that condition that we find ourselves in, that condition of hamartia, to miss the mark, to fall short. I once regretfully heard a preacher define sin in terms of mistakes. No, my friend, putting a brown sock with a black sock is a mistake. Sin is much deeper and more real than that. 
Let's continue our kaleidoscope and see that the next word you'll find used in the scripture is the word ah dakia. It has to do with dakia means righteous. Ah dakia is unrighteousness. It is corresponding to the word sadik in the Hebrew, which means the righteousness of God. And basically it signals any wrongdoing, any wickedness, any injustice, someone who breaks God's law. You can see this is descended from immediately a notion of judge and law and justice. This is forensic language. This particular language tells us something about who God is. His holiness demands absolute righteousness and justice. And that transcript of God's character is inscripturated and set forth and, and verbalized in commandment and law. And one who breaks that law is an unrighteous person. God's law is legislative. God's justice is legislative in that He gives laws. But His justice is also judicial in that He pronounces verdicts and gives remunerations and rewards for obedience and He gives punishments for disobedience. Concomitant in it is an idea of wrath, punishment, guilt. Following right alongside of that is the notion of lawlessness. Ah, nomia in the Greek. It means nomia means law, nomos means law, without law. But it goes beyond just not having a law. Paul deals with that argumentatively in one of his letters when he talks about it's almost immaterial as to whether there's a law out there. The problem is the condition of the heart is a lawless condition. And that's where we start to get to the heart of the matter. If the law is the transcript of God's character, someone who breaks law is an affront to God. It's interesting in the final judgment Christ tells us in his gospel in Matthew that in the last day he will hear these dreadful words, depart from me, ye workers of anomia, lawlessness. I never knew you. That's the description of the condemned. That's the verdict of the judge. All judgment's been given to the son and the son has already given us his verdict on lawlessness. Paul, in urging us to righteousness in his letter, tells us to yield our members not to anomia, but to the Spirit. Lawlessness is a condition. Moving along, another word is the word unfaithfulness. Ah, pistia. Pistia is belief or faith. Ah is the negative uh, prefix, which means no faith, without faith, faithless heart. It's called by our Lord an evil heart of unbelief. God's people in the Old Testament did not enter the land of Canaan, but all died in the wilderness because of unbelief, ah, pistia. It's an attitude that we harbor, basically. 
And it's an attitude toward God. Basically, you don't believe Him. You don't trust Him. You don't have any confidence in Him. You don't look to Him and expect from Him that which He has promised. You don't fear that which He has warned. You just are unfaithful. The concomitant word in the Hebrew is the word ma'al, and it has to do with faithlessness, and it is pictured over and over in the Old Testament as an adulterous, faithless relationship. We see it in Hosea, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it over and over where God has a bride, and the bride is a harlot, and the harlot goes away and must be redeemed and must be cleansed and must be separated out of the godless and brought back to himself. It's a beautiful picture of salvation and it's enacted over and over and over. God Almighty by His salvific work, by His saving grace overcomes our apistia. Debauchery. Oselgia. You ever heard that word before? It's not really a preach that often, is it? You ever heard a sermon on oselgia? It's debauchery. It means lust, licentiousness, lasciviousness, wantonness, shamelessness, insolence. It is often used to describe the pagan world. It is a condition. It is highlighted by excess, especially in the passions of the flesh, drunkenness, addictions, sexual immorality of all sorts. It is the word that's used with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah in 2 Peter 2.7. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was oselgia, debauchery. Six, and we're halfway through. Perverted desire. We saw this last week. This is the word epithumia. And it's interesting, the word itself just means strong desire. And it can be good. Jesus said, I have desired to eat the Passover with you. That's certainly a good Epithumia, a good desire, but it can often turn to the bad because it is something within us that moves us. It is the lust. It is that word and it is that notion that's used over and over by Paul in Romans 7 when he, des- when he describes that, that great warfare that's going on in the soul, that spiritual battle where the spirit lusts against the flesh, the flesh against the spirit. Paul wants to do something, but he does something else. And the things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do at all, he does it. Oh, wretched man that I am, he finally concludes. He is consumed with epithumia, in the wrong direction. Number seven, asabia, ungodliness or irreverence. It's that impurity in thought and act. It too is an attitude. It's described in 2 Timothy 2 as profane. That's the English word that translates it, profane, which is a Latin word, profanus. Pro means before, and fanus is the temple. It's things that are done before the temple. It is things that, that are willful and wanton. It is a kind of a blasphemy, a depreciation of the sacred. Jesus warns us over and over about taking sacred things and making them 
mundane and taking mundane things and making them sacred, exchanging that which God has exalted for which man has exalted, taking the words of men in the place of the words of God. And that's what's going on here. It is a total irreverence. Paul adds to it in his description of depravity and sin in Romans 1, and he calls it, neither were thankful. There's no bended knee. There's no respect. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. How many times do you hear it in the workplace, on television, the name of God, the name of Jesus, profaned. That which is sacred, life itself in the womb, profaned, blasphemed. That, of course, is part of the kaleidoscope that keeps changing, but it's always the same flakes. You can turn it any way you want to. It'll make different configurations. It'll look like different things, but it's still the same little batch of colored plastic. Ekthra. There's a good word, Pete. Ekthra. Love saying it, you know, just sort of, it's guttural. Ekthra. It's the word enmity. Hostile feelings, especially hatred toward God. It's haters of God. Paul says the carnal mind is enmity. It's an enemy of God. It's the word that's used of a feud. It's used of that feud between Pilate and Herod that had existed before the crucifixion of Christ. And finally something brought them together and they were reconciled. They both agreed on something. Christ must be crucified. Christ must be eliminated. He must be punished. That's the only thing that brought that feud to an end was their agreement upon a principle. Did you know that's what brings the world? What fellowship has Islam with secular humanist atheism? Antichrist. They are both distinctly anti-Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the Son of God. And you'll see in our observance an an alliance, an unholy alliance between Islam and other false religions and secular, godless, atheistic humanism. They don't agree on any tenet, any presupposition, any deity, or any major principle except one. They hate God and His Christ. And they're willing to conspire to bring about his destruction. And that's its fellowship with the world is ekthra, James says. It is enmity toward God. And here's a word we're familiar with, kakia, kakia, depravity. It's opposed to virtue. It's a, it's a real good Greek word because the Greeks were real good in spelling out the particulars of virtue. And so if they could see any slight in those virtues, if, if, if truthfulness was a virtue, then prevarication and lying, misrepresenting and all was a kakia. It was a depravity. It means it, it's a malignity, a malice, ill will. It's a desire to injure, a wickedness. But the most telling thing about depravity is that it has no shame. 
It will sin with impunity. It will boldly declare in the face of God and in all witnesses its sinfulness. It will march out same-sex union. It will march out abortion and not have one pink cheek of blush. That's precisely what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10. He said, there's no blush. They sin with impunity. It's flagrant. Their adultery, their filthiness, their fornications, their murders, their lyings are right out there for all to see. And it's not only are they not ashamed of it, they make it public policy. And the wise men in the robes say, yeah, that makes sense to us. That's a right. What if you were a holy God looking down on that? What would be your first instinct? It is vicious. And that too is a disposition of the heart. Depravity. Are you at number 10? I am. It's the word poniros or poniros. The word kakos is evil. It could be moral evil or it could be just evil like a tornado is evil. It could be just a natural evil. But poniros is the Greek equivalent and it's talking about that which is dangerous, destructive, injurious, unfit or useless or corrupt. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 7 when he says a corrupt or a diseased tree, a sapron tree, a tree that is corrupt, that is diseased, brings forth evil, poneros fruit. It's the seeds that are in our heart that bring forth all of this evil desire and inactive. The prophet Isaiah had a keen sense of having seen the holiness of the Lord. He had a keen sense of what the sinfulness of man was. He said to him, he says, I am undone, I am unclean. But he says of all men, he says, the whole head is sick. The whole body is sick. Full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's poneros. And then parabasis or parabasis. It means to cross a barrier, to cross a line. We would call it a trespass. It's, it's a violation. It's an overt act. It's a sinful deed. Paul says the purpose of the law is to bring an awareness of sin, an awareness of parabasis, an awareness of where the lines are drawn and where we cross them. It means to violate a border, to step out of bounds. How big a deal do we make in the NFL of what's in bounds and what's out of bounds? I mean, if that toe of that cleat is right there on one little fraction of a millimeter and a little bit of white chalk dust comes up and the 10th replay shows that it was there, he's out of bounds. And yet in our life, we don't even acknowledge hardly any boundaries at all. I have a sermon one time I'm going to preach on how the new religion in America is the NFL. And here's going to be my number one proof. I got a lot of proofs, but here's my number one proof. The way the commentators dress. Preachers now preach in pullover shirts and skinny jeans and sit on a stool and get up there and talk as casual as they can using hardly no vocabulary, don't explain anything very clearly, and that's great preaching. And it's done in churches all over the world especially here in America. 
Meanwhile, Troy and Terry and all those guys put on a $2,000 Armani suit, Armani suit, tie, fix up, talk about this in terms of precision, this in terms of technicality. They spell this out, they explain that, they talk about what this is and one thing, and they just lay it out there for it in supreme detail. And we take it all in and we worry and we debate about it. That's religion. That's a fervor for precision and a fervor for things and getting it right and doing it. And our spokesmen come well prepared and well presented. And yet there's nothing in the world, if you think about it, more insignificant than NFL football. I'm going to watch the Cowboys this afternoon, by the way. Lord willing, I'm preaching at three. I'll, I'll be done. <clears throat> I'll, cut that, I'll cut that sermon short. I'm as guilty as anybody of, of all of this. And you know it. Well, let's, let's, let's wrap it up. The last word, number 12, is the paroptoma. It means an offense. It is a particular violation of a known rule, but here's the key with that. It brings guilt. It's the lapse. It's the fall. It's the sin. It's that which is. And here's my final word, inexcusable. Oh, thou art without excuse.